All right, so a couple of assignments. I did add the one in there. I should have put that up last time, although I think everyone knew activity one, but we did in class last Friday. Many of you turned it in then. You're done. If you were still working on it, people have been turning it in all week. Just make sure I get that in by Friday as well so I can look at those and get them back to you. So that was the activity that we did in class in lab last Friday. So nothing else do if you've already done it and turned it in, of course, you're, if you're done. Uh, homework one is also due on Friday. So the first homework will be due will be due then. And then the first quiz will be available starting on should be available starting on Friday and you'll have through the whole long weekend to to take that one. That'll cover chapter zero and one. And we'll be through with chapter one probably sometime on Friday. We'll probably be done with one and into two on Friday. Uh, next week when we come back, the quiz will be due. You'll have to finish that up that week. The first set of solar observations will be due on uh, Wednesday. And exam one will be, then exam one will be the following Monday. And starting to jump ahead to new stuff, homework two. We haven't even finished homework one yet. What's homework two? Uh, homework two will be due two weeks from Friday. I'll give that out to you on Friday. So I have it ready. I'll give it, it's, it's on D2L if you really want to jump ahead. But I'll hand that out on, on Friday for you. So that's what's coming up. The only stuff we've got left due this week, again, our activity, if you haven't already turned that in and the homework homework assignment due on Friday slash Saturday morning got till 6 a.m. Saturday so to submit it to the Dropbox for full credit. Question questions? Nope, nope, nope. All right. We're ready to go today then. All right. Very pretty picture for today. Um, a thunderstorm a little closer to closer to home astronomically. Uh, picture here of the Earth obviously. Uh, and a thunderstorm cloud heading off, retreating off into the distance. So heading off towards the east at sunset. The sun would be behind you here, illuminating the cloud. And the thunderstorm is then heading off to the, to the east. You can actually see some of the rain falling down way off in the distance over here. You can sort of see the streaming down with the, with the thunderstorm is occurring. Uh, you don't actually see any lightning in this one that, I can, that I've been able to pick out. Um, not specifically an astronomical photograph, but uh, certainly is covering the Earth. We do have one other uh, celestial object in it. If you look over to the very far right side here, you actually do have the moon that was rising. Sun was getting ready to, was, was in the west getting ready to set. Here's the moon in the east rising at the same time. So I actually managed to capture the moon in the image as well. Now, the weather effects that we see here on Earth are not necessarily that different than what we see on other planets too. We do see storms on other planets. So there is a great storm on Jupiter, a great cyclonic storm called the Great Red Spot that is on Jupiter. That is actually a storm that has lasted hundreds of years. So much bigger than anything we have here on the Earth. Uh, much, much bigger than anything we have on the Earth because you could fit two Earths within, within the Great Red Spot itself. So much bigger than our own planet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a great storm on Saturn. Saturn has this hex hexagonal shaped storm, which is unusual. Usually, things are circles and ovals and very rounded figures. You don't usually get, you know, square shaped figures. So it's interesting that this is a hexagonal 
shape. It's something that's being been studied by Cassini, which is the spacecraft that is out there studying Saturn right now. I haven't heard any good explanations as to why we get that kind of shape for it. But there is that very interesting pattern on the, the, the northern, northern hemisphere. I'm trying to remember. I believe it's the northern hemisphere of Saturn. So. But we do see weather patterns. We do see storms. We see lightning um, on other planets. So some of these things are not confined just to the Earth. Uh, certainly the rainstorms are. We don't know of any other planet that has liquid water raining on it. Other liquids perhaps. But Venus, similar to Earth, much, much too hot for liquid water. And Mars's atmosphere is much too thin to support liquid water. So no other signs of liquid water or rain like this. But there actually may be on one of the moons of Saturn uh, storms with a liquid falling, just not water. Actually liquid methane. So very much colder temperatures. So it's at, at the distance of that moon, Titan, the large moon of Saturn, we could actually get you know, some kind of rainstorm, but not rain in terms of liquid water, but rain in terms of uh, liquid methane instead. It has acids in its atmosphere, but the temperatures are just too hot. I don't think you're ever going to rain anything out. They're going to be there suspended in the atmosphere in clouds, but you're not really going to be able to rain them out, you know, to the surface in any case like you get, like you get here. Temperature is just way too hot. I mean, 900 degrees at the surface. Little warm for almost, I mean, melting lead, you're a little bit warm for almost anything that we're used to thinking of as a liquid. So, other questions? Before we jump back to Galileo? Oh, Galileo, that's the other thing I had to do. I brought my little telescope in today. Um, one of the things we're thinking of doing is adding, this won't, this won't affect this class specifically, so, uh, but adding another a kit that you'd buy to build a telescope as part of the course. It's one of the things that we're looking at doing. And this is the telescope that we're doing. I was going to pass it around and let you take a look at it. What we were interested in doing this semester is possibly trying it out if anybody is interested in purchasing one through the bookstore. Probably end up, we'll get, I can get you a t total cost before you commit to me, probably about 40 bucks for it. It's about 50, almost 60 through Amazon if you try to buy, buy the same kit. So we get a discounted price through the bookstore. Uh, it's a kit. You do put it together. So it's actually a nice little project. You can actually put the telescope together. It's not a super high powerful telescope or anything. You're not going to see any of the great, well, you know, are there pictures of the day? You're not going to see great nebulae or anything. But works really well for looking at things like the, like the moon. Worked out really well. It's relatively easy to put together. My daughter did this one. She's 11. I gave her the kit. And I sat her down in the floor in my office this summer. And I said, put it together. Ask me if you have any questions, but put it together. She needed a little bit of help putting the eyepiece, getting all the little lenses in the eyepiece together properly. And she needed help getting, it's got two bands here, little rings that go over to hold it. She had trouble stretching those over it. And that was about it. Took her about an hour and 15 minutes to put it together. So I figure if she can do it that quickly, you know, you guys should be able to do it easily in that kind of time period. So it's not, it's not a big fancy one. Does work real well. Looks at the, look at the moon. You can see some nice detail. And in fact, as we're talking about Galileo and his discoveries, you could actually see things like if you get up early in the morning right now where Jupiter is, you could see, you could see the moons of Jupiter. So not in the great detail. I'll show you images. But you could see Jupiter's little disk with little dots around it. So you'd be able to see little things like that. 
It is difficult to hold steady. It does have a tripod mount if you have a tripod where you could actually mount it on something and hold it much sturdier. So I was going to pass it around. If anybody is interested, let me know. I'm trying to see if I can get a few people who are interested sort of as a trial this semester to see if there's anyone and to see how it works in a class setting like this. And it's, not, say, it's something we're considering adding for the classes where you'd go buy your book and you'd buy the kit at the same time at the bookstore. So if you're interested, I'm going to pass it around. You can take a look if you like while I'm starting on lecture. And that's it. It's not a fancy metal one. It's, it's plastic, but it, it works really well. It's got a decent quality. Op for the price you're paying, it's got a decent quality set of optics. It's not, you know, you're not going to get really high quality optics with something like, like that. But for the price you're paying on it, it's actually pretty good. So if anyone is interested, you can catch me after class or before class on Friday or, you know, email me and let me know. And I'll try to see if I can get a, get a hold of the uh, professor who's handling it and we'll see if we can get a decent number that we can get a, get a reasonable, price, reasonable price on it. So. All right, let's get back to Galileo then, which is what we were working on. And Galileo had a number of observations here we were talking about, and I'd gone over a number of these. And this, the telescope is actually called the Galileo, it's called the Galileo scope is the name for it. It's much bigger than anything Galileo would have had, but uh, still be able to see some of the different things that he had seen. Now we saw, we talked about craters on the moon. The moon's not perfect. So everything in the heavens was supposed to be perfect and here, it was, here they were not. The craters on the moon were not, the craters on the moon showing that the moon was not perfect. We saw sunspots. Something you don't want to point a telescope like that at this, or any kind of telescope like that at the sun. Uh, you, can, you, could, you could use that. I haven't tried it specifically. I have to try. You could use it to project the sun where you point it at the sun without looking through it and project the image down on the sidewalk. That, that would probably work. You certainly don't want to look through it at the sun. And Galileo would have used either something like projection to look at the sun or would have been looking at the sun uh, very early sunrise, very late sunset when the sun is much lower in the sky and not near as bright. Uh, with, with projecting it? Yeah, yeah. You'd be able, projection is one of the good methods to be able to, to see, to watch, to look at the sun. So, sunspots were one more thing. We talked about the moons of Jupiter. Basically saying that everything didn't orbit around the Earth. Here's, some, here's proof of something that we could watch that. Again, something you could see with a small telescope like that. You could go look at the Look at the moon, look at Jupiter, plot out where the moons are today, look at where they are the next day and the next day, and see how they're moving around Jupiter. Four, I'm coming back to, that's the phases of Venus. That's the one I want to talk about today. Five, I added in was stars in the Milky Way. So, supposed to have been a finite number of stars. All of a sudden we look at this Milky Way which just looks like a hazy patch and there's many more stars. And then one more I hadn't added in last time that we mentioned after, cl after class is the rings of Saturn. Kind of. Well, almost. 
couldn't quite see the rings of Saturn through his telescope. The telescope was not big enough to be able to see that much detail on Saturn, Saturn being so much further away than Jupiter. But he did see that Saturn was a little disk and it had little blobs off to either side. They didn't move around it as the moons of Jupiter did. So he'd have seen something like this for Jupiter with smaller blobs, but they moved. These ones stayed in the same spot most of the time. Didn't really move, but they would disappear. So for many years they'd be visible and then all of a sudden they'd disappear for a year or two and then they'd come back. And what he was really seeing was the rings. You're seeing just that edge of the ring here, the edge of the ring here. So he got some idea that there was something going on with Saturn, that Saturn was not perfect. Right? There's something else unusual about it, but could not actually resolve the rings. It wasn't for another 60 or so years. Oh, thank you. Another 60 or so years that we were actually able to get big enough telescopes to be able to see the rings of Saturn. I'll have to try with something this side. I don't know if something this size would be able to let you see the, let you see the rings. Okay, so six different discoveries there. All a big change in our understanding of what the universe had been up to that point. Up until the early 1600s, the universe was, the heavens were perfect. So everything in the heavens was perfect. Everything was unchanging. Anything that changed in the heavens was something that really was happening in the atmosphere of the earth. So if you saw a change to a star, you saw a change of something, it was something that was going on in the earth's atmosphere. Now we're starting to see, first of all, that things do not have to all orbit the earth. We're seeing that the heavens are not perfect. Saturn, the moon, and the sun were not, were not perfect. So all was a big change in our understanding that started in the very early 1600s. The biggest one that I haven't talked about yet was Venus having phases. Now that's something we couldn't know about before. We needed a telescope to be able to see that Venus has phases. Venus is very easy to see in the sky. Right, you go out in the evening sky, uh, you should be, it's, it's going to be in the evening this semester, so if you look out in the evening in the west and you see a really bright star there and it's not flashing and moving around like an airplane, right, um, it's Venus. Venus will be out there in the evening sky this, this whole semester. And it's very bright, very easy to see, but you can't see any detail on it. All you see is this bright, bright star-like object in the sky. With a telescope you can actually see it and you'll see that it goes through a set of phases. And my next slide here shows how we try to how we explain that. So here in the top is where we are. This is what is correct. Okay, there's the sun in the center. There's the earth going around it. And what we see is a complete set of phases. Sometimes you see a very thin crescent phase, just like the moon. Thin crescent phase of the moon, you can see a thin crescent phase of Venus. Sometimes you see a half phase, half of Venus is illuminated. Sometimes you see a full phase. So you can see the complete cycle of phases. That's what Galileo observed. So not only did he see the phases, but he saw the complete cycle. A complete cycle of phases. So he could see everything. He could see a full phase of Venus, he could see a quarter phase, he could see a crescent phase, and a new phase. That was a prediction that is made by the heliocentric model with the sun at the center. That's a prediction that's made. That is very contrary to what would be predicted by a geocentric model. For a geocentric model, we've got the earth here at the center. We have the sun orbiting around that. 
And then here's Venus. Here's Venus's orbit. Here's Venus's epicycle. It's orbiting on that epicycle. And that point in the center is fixed. Venus, all, that, that epicycle always has to be between the Earth and the Sun. That has to be because that's the only places we ever see Venus in the sky. It's always close to the Sun. It's the morning star. It's the evening star. So it's either close to the Sun right after sunset in the west in the evening, or it's up just before the Sun in the east before sunrise. Those are the only times you can see it. You never see Venus way over here. So what it was set up in the model to account for the observations that we see is that you kind of locked the Earth, the Sun, and this central point of Venus's orbit on a line. They were locked together and that meant you could only see Venus so far away from the Sun in the morning or so far away from the Sun in the evening. But because you have to do that to explain the observations, it makes a prediction about the phases. It does predict you'll see phases of Venus, but it predicts that no matter where it is, you'll always see a crescent phase. So no matter where Venus is in its orbit, you'll see a bigger crescent, a bigger, fa- a bigger phase here, a bigger image of, Ju- of Venus with a thin crescent if you're close. You'll see a smaller crescent if it's further away. Just like we see here, bigger and smaller, the size changes. But you never get a full phase because you never get Venus on the other side of the Sun so that we can see it's a fully illuminated face. So that was a big thing for here because that showed that not that the Sun was the center of the universe. Didn't demonstrate that. It only showed that Venus had to orbit the Sun. It was the first observation of anything that could only be explained by that planet orbiting the Sun. Didn't mean Earth had to orbit the Sun. Certainly giving you a good hint in that direction, but it didn't require the Earth to orbit the Sun. You could actually come up with a different model that explains this without having the Earth orbiting the Sun. You could have the Earth here at the center. So you have the Earth here, and you could have the Sun orbiting around the Earth. There's the Sun going around the Earth, and you could have Venus orbiting around the Sun. That explains it. That'll explain the observations we see. So scientifically, it's a, very, it's, a, it's a good model because it explains those observations. It wasn't until the 1800s when we could actually measure parallax to actually find out that the Earth is moving. So this helped. It was certainly a big hint when you start finding one of these planets orbiting the Sun. Well, that means that Mercury must be orbiting the Sun and Venus and Jupiter and Mars. So once you get all of these planets orbiting the Sun, why is the Earth different? And why do you have the Earth here and with the Moon and the Sun orbiting it but everything else orbiting the Sun? You're starting to get to a much more complicated model. But one of the reasons we didn't just have, you know, we still could, many people still considered that the Earth was the center was that we didn't have any direct proof yet uh, that the Earth was actually moving. But Galileo's observations were a big help, a big push in that, in that direction. So trying to understand the motions of the planets was very helpful. And another astronomer who worked around the time of Galileo and studied the motions of the planets was uh, Johannes Kepler. And he came up with, we finish up with Galileo here, he came up with a number of different observations or he looked at observations, studied a lot of observations that had been made, and came up with 
three laws of planetary motion. He didn't do the observations himself. He took observations that had been made by another astronomer. And this was actually slightly, he lived in about Galileo's time. The other astronomer was a little bit before Galileo. Meaning that all these observations that were made were done before the telescope. So he made lots of, they made lots and lots of observations looking and measuring the positions of the planets. All of these were done very accurately, but before the telescope had actually started to be used. And he took and analyzed all of these observations and came up with some, some rules, some rules that explained the planetary orbits. And the first law, his first law, says that the orbits of the planets are ellipses. with the Sun at one focus. That's a big, big change from what had been believed for many thousands of years. Everything before had been considered to be circles. From the time of the ancient Greeks, uh, even the time of the Renaissance, before Galileo, everything was always a perfect circle. The heavens were perfect. What's the perfect shape? The perfect shape is a circle, right? Everything's equidistant from the center. It's the perfect shape. So everything orbits in, it's in the heavens are perfect. Everything orbits in a circle. But because of, pre, of very accurate observations and Kepler's analysis, he was able to find out that they weren't quite circles. They were close, but not quite. They were a little bit squashed circles or ellipses. Now the diagram here shows you an ellipse. This is extremely uh, stretched out for a planet. The planets aren't even close to this kind of orbit. For the planet, if I gave you the circles and the ellipse, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. This, the orbit would actually look very circular. But it's slightly, slightly squished. And what that means is that there's sometimes when the planet's a little bit closer to the sun, sometimes when it's a little bit further away. Uh, if to draw an ellipse, an ellipse is an object where every point on it is the, sa is the same distance from two points. So if you draw a line here and you measure this distance and add this distance, this distance plus this distance is the same for any point on that ellipse. And that's how you can draw it with a couple tacks and a pencil and a piece of string. You're making sure that length of the string is the same. That'll draw you an ellipse. The further apart you switch those, those fo the foci, the two focuses, the two foci, the further apart you put them, the more squashed that circle is and the more it looks like what we think of as an ellipse. You put them close together and in fact if they merge at the center you actually get the special case of it being a circle. So you could have an orbit that was a circle, that would be a tremendously special case, but everything that we see, all the planetary orbits that we see, all the cometary orbits, all of the asteroids, everything else is orbiting in an, elli in an ellipse with, vi with very few exceptions. There are other types of orbits that you can have, but any object that is bound to the sun and is going to be staying here, like a planet, like an asteroid, like many of the comets, is going to have an elliptical orbit. And again, that's a big change from what had been believed for thousands and thousands of years. It was always circles, 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 even when we first switched and came up with the first uh, heliocentric models. Said, hey, let's put the sun at the center. They were still using circles for the orbits. So this was the first big jump ahead 
to show that the planetary orbits were not, not circles, but were instead ellipses. A couple of terms here. First of all, the ma- the ma- the, there's the major axis. The major axis is the entire long diameter. Means that, if you think about major axis, the minor axis is actually one that goes this way, the smallest diameter of the ellipse. There is a closest approach. The sun is at one focus here. There is a closest approach to the sun, perihelion, when we get the closest to the sun. There is a most distant, distant time from the sun for every planet, aphelion. You may have heard of those on Earth too, right? Perigee and apogee, meaning the same thing for the Earth. When a satellite is at its closest approach, it's at perigee. When it's at uh, its furthest approach, it's, it's at apogee. And the other number given in here is this little E, which is kind of hiding in here. E is the eccentricity. That tells you how squashed that ellipse is. So an eccentricity of zero would mean you have a circle. It's not squashed at all. An eccentricity very, very close to one, and you're getting an ellipse that's you know, really long and stretched out. That's a comet orbit. Comets come in. One focus might be really close here. Comets come in really close to the sun for a very brief time and then go out and spend most of their time way out in the outer part of the solar system. So that's what the, that's what the E is. The E is the eccentricity uh, of, the, of the orbit. How squashed is that orbit? What if the eccentricity is bigger than one? What if the eccentricity is bigger than one? Give me one second. Uh, then you no longer have a closed orbit. Eccentricity greater than one would be a hyperbolic orbit. So it would be an orbit like this. Means that the object comes in, passes by the sun, and comes out, and never comes back again. Yeah. Many, a number of the comets are do something like this. They'll come in once, and then they're gone. They head back out, so out into interstellar space. So, yeah, question. I'm sorry. Yes, it does. A planet will actually speed up. Speed up. You're actually you're jumping one wall ahead of me. But yes, it will go closer. It'll go faster when it gets closer. It'll go faster when it gets closer to the sun. Well, it goes a little bit faster, but not that fast that it's going to throw it out of an orbit. It doesn't go whipping that close. It's going to speed up a little bit, go a little bit faster. In terms of the Earth, if you measure the time between you know the solstices and the equinoxes, you find that. The time between the winter solstice and the summer solstice is a couple days shorter than between summer and winter, going around the other way, because we're closer to the sun and it goes moving a little bit faster, so there's a little bit less time there. Not fast enough that you're going to whip out like this. You'd have to get really, really close to the sun to be able to do that or come in on an unusual orbit. The other orbits of the planets are stable elliptical orbits. Kepler's second law. So jumping ahead to what you're talking, this talks a little bit about that. This is the equal, this is, I'll, I'll, re, I'll reword this one for you in a second here. This is the technical definition of it. And what it says is that a line connecting the sun and the planet the sun and the planet uh, sweeps out equal areas 
in equal times. And what does that mean, right? <laughs> Makes perfect sense, right? No. It's, this is how Kepler came up with the law. He actually measured and would plot out the orbits. And he could actually look and say, OK, here's the orbit. And it took the planet so long to go from here to here. And if I calculate the area between, between the sun and the planet, I get so many. In my scale model, when I draw this on my piece of paper, I get so many square inches of area. And say that takes you know two months. And if it takes two months to go from here to here, this area is exactly the same. And if it takes two months to go here, to travel this distance over here at A, that area is exactly the same as B, is exactly the same as C. Now, jumping, as we jumped ahead a little bit the last time, this what it's really telling you, what it really means is that the planets move faster when they're closer to the sun. So he didn't pick it out that way. He didn't ter determine it in terms of velocities. He determined it in terms of areas, which is why it's stated this way. But what it's really saying is that planets move fast when they're close to the sun and move slow when they're further away. So here's the Earth. In winter, in January, we're closest to the sun, moving the quickest. In July, we're furthest away, moving the slowest. Not even close to being to scale. It makes a couple, there's a couple days difference in the seasons. You know, some are 89 days long, some are 90, 91. There's only a, a couple days difference, but significant enough that we can measure it, how long it takes to go from one to the other. So what it really is saying is that the speed, it moves faster when closer to the sun. So technical formulation, how Kepler came up with it, that the line connecting the planet and the sun, those areas are going to be the same in equal amounts of time. But what it's really saying is that the planets move faster when they're closer to the sun and slower when they're further away. A couple million miles, not, not a whole lot. I think it's something like a million or two miles. And a million or two miles sounds like a heck, it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But when you're talking about 93 million miles, it's not that big of a difference. It's, it's, it's a million to two million miles closer or further away around. The, 93 million is the average. So sometimes it might be, you know, 92, 91, sometimes it's 94, 95. So sometimes a little bit closer, sometimes a little bit further away. And again, it seems like a lot, but when you're talking about a 93 mile journey, one mile less or more. It's a little bit, but it's not that big of a deal. So it's relatively small. So it's a small percentage, but it's significant enough that we can that we can actually measure can actually measure it. But that's really what Kepler's law is saying. That's what to think about it as is to think about it telling you that when the planet is moving faster and when the planet is moving slower. All right, number 3. Number three, I'm going to write differently than it has up there. You can write that down. That's written out in words. We can also write it out as an equation. And it says that the square of the period of a planet's orbital motion, okay, there's the period squared, is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis. If you recall, the semi-major axis, this was the major axis. The semi-major axis is just half this. So this is the semi-major axis. 
just half that long axis of the ellipse or the average distance between the planet and the sun. That really turns out to also be the average distance. So that's the period. The semi-major axis is abbreviated in astronomical terminology by the letter A. So the square of the period, how long does it take the planet to go around the sun once, is equal to or really proportional to the cube of the average distance from the sun. Now how did, how did Kepler find this? Well he probably went through some sort of ca- set of calculations and said well here's the period. We know how long it takes each of these planets to go around in years. You know, it takes Mercury a fraction of a year, Venus a little more than half a year, Mars closer to 2, Jupiter pushing 12, Saturn 30. Didn't know about these two planets yet. And we could calculate the distances. How far are they relative to the, to the Earth? There's the Earth at one astronomical unit. Mars is one and a half, Jupiter five, Saturn getting close to ten. So we knew those numbers and he probably looked at, looked at tables of them and said, well here they are. What if I square one? What if I square both of them and compare them? What if I cube one? What if I cube both of them? What if I leave one alone and square, you know, all sorts of different uh, combinations you could think about until he came upon this one that actually gave us something that really comes out very close to one. What, he's do, what this last column in is just dividing those two. So you take the period and square it. So take .241, multiply that by .241, get some number, divide that by .387 times 3.387 times .387 and you get something very, very close to one. You do that same thing for Venus, square this number, multiply it by itself, cube the other one, multiply by itself two more times. Again, you get something very, very close to one. Yeah, you've got some rounding off errors here, but pretty much everything rounds up to just about one. And you get that same thing for the Earth, for Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. So everything that he observed there came worked out very, very well. That there was a relationship between how fast the planet orbited and how far away from the sun it was. Now, this is something we'll see and this will come back to this again uh, later in the course because this is an estimate, this is just, this works, the way he has this set up, it works only for the solar system. Only for things orbiting around the sun. But there's a more general form of this law that works anywhere in the universe. And it actually involves a mass. It actually involves the mass, so you could actually write this as the mass is equal to a cubed over p squared. The mass being the mass of the object at the center. What is being orbited? Now it gives me a way to determine masses in the universe. So I can determine the mass of something here and we could determine the mass of the sun by using the orbit of the Earth. Earth orbits around at a distance of one astronomical unit. We're going to do the real easy numbers here, right? One astronomical unit to the third power. One times one times one is one, right? So that would be one. The period of the Earth, how long it takes to go around the sun once, is one year, right? So one, one year squared is still one. That means that the mass of the sun is one. Okay, what, what, one what, right? Well, the mass, that means the mass of the sun 
is one solar mass. Seems redundant there. Well, big deal. The mass of the sun is one solar mass. Yeah, the mass of the sun is the mass of the sun. How does that help us? Doesn't help us with the sun. But if we did the same thing for, an, for another star where we saw something orbiting it, and I figure out how long it takes something to orbit it, how, what the distance is, what the period is, I can do the same calculation in astronomical units in years. And I could say that the mass of that star is three times the mass of the sun, or a half the mass of the sun. No other way to weigh things out in space, right? We can't go take great scales out there. There's no way to go measure anything. This is our way to actually determine masses of objects out in space. And there are conversions. Once we know how much the mass of the sun really is, you know, some large number of grams, some large number of kilograms, then we can determine the, the actual masses of other things, but very easily to compare them to the mass of the sun using this, using this law. And we'll see that we use it for stars, Use it for galaxies, for clusters of galaxies. You can use this as our only way we have of really getting good masses for anything in the universe. So Kepler's three laws. First set of three laws. We've got another set of three laws coming up here in just, in just a second. So any questions? Questions on those? Orbits or ellipses. Planets move faster when they're closer to the sun, slower when they're further away and that there's a relationship between the period and the distance. That there's actually a relationship between the two. Righty. So, mentioning the astronomical unit, let's take in a little aside here, figuring out how big the solar system is. We can pretty easily determine the, the solar system relative to the Earth. Sort of like we can easily determine masses relative to the Sun. We can measure and for a long time have known the distances of the planets relative to the Earth. The Earth being one astronomical unit. So again, that's sort of like saying the Sun is one solar mass. That's saying, well, the Earth is on average one Earth-Sun distance away from the Sun. Right? It doesn't tell you a whole lot. It doesn't tell you whether that's 93 million miles or 23 million miles or 187 million miles or anything else. It doesn't tell you that. But we could uh, geometrically then determine that this is one astronomical unit and we could determine that that is 0.7 and we could get that Mercury is about 0.4. We could determine Jupiter, we could determine Mars, we could determine Saturn. We could measure all those relative to the Earth. But what we really want to get, we want to know how big is this astronomical unit. That's a very hard number to get. It's a very hard number to measure it in, you know, feet, measure it in miles, measure it in kilometers, to actually get a number to attach to it. That is something much harder to do. Uh, there are a number of ways it was worked on in the 1700s. Um, there were methods of uh, parallax. We've talked about parallax, measuring the shifts. You'd actually measure the parallax of Venus when it would pass in front of the sun. Happens very rarely. Uh, two times every 100, 150 years. If you missed it last year, you've got to live about another 115 years to see the next one. It actually occurred last June was the last one, and then the next one is in like 2115 or 2120 something, the next time that, that will occur. But by measuring that from different points on the Earth's surface, they were able to try to get estimates of how big this astronomical unit really was. To get good estimates took a little bit longer. That wasn't until the 1950s or so, as radar started to come, come out and be able to develop radar, 1940s, 1950s. 
And then we had a good way of measuring distances. Because we could send a signal to Venus, bounce it, bounce a sig- radar signal off, wait for it to come back, and time how long that took. Okay? We know how far it traveled in astronomical units. We know, also know how long it took to get there. We could time it. How many minutes did it take to get there and back? It took a certain amount of time for that round trip passage. And fortunately, we also know how fast it was traveling. Right? A radar wave is really just an, uh, ra- a radio signal traveling at the speed of light. So we know exactly what its velocity is. We know how long it took to get there. We could figure out the distance. And that was the way we actually got the actual dimensions of the solar system accurately. The best values really have come very recently in the last 50 years or so with radar measurements, being able to bounce a signal off of something like Venus and determine the astronomical unit directly, or semi-directly at least. Now, you might say, why not just bounce it off the sun? Send a signal to the sun and get, get one astronomical unit. You don't have to figure out, well, this is the only determining point three, and you've got to do another conversion factor. Well, the sun, also, the sun doesn't have a real solid surface to bounce anything off of. So you could send a radar signal there, and it's probably going to be very good at absorbing it. And also, the sun also emits a lot of radio waves. So it would be a large source of interference. So pointing the, pointing the radio dish at the sun would, a radar dish at the sun, would cause, inter, would cause a lot of interference. So instead, you'd use Venus, something you could, you could point at that would have a more solid surface you could bounce things off of, and then use that to determine the actual size. What, you could then determine what this distance is. And that's how we come up with the modern value of about 93 million miles. All right, so we did Kepler's three laws. Now we get to get started on Newton's three, get started on Newton's three laws. Newton. A little bit after after Galileo and Kepler uh, came up with three laws as well. His laws do not relate to planetary motion specifically, but actually to any motion. So while Kepler's laws were very specific in talking about the motion of the planets, uh, Newton's laws actually talk about any kind of motion. So they're much more general. And his first law of motion says an object at rest remains at rest. An object in uniform straight line motion We'll continue that motion. Meaning if something's moving in a straight line, it's going to keep doing that. And both of these are unless an outside force is acting. So an object at rest remains at rest. Zip this up. It's staying at rest. I guess Newton was right. So an object is not going to sit there and move, right? If I put it there and we come back to Friday, it's still going to be sitting there, right? Unless somebody decides to walk off with it. But that's an, ex- that's an outside force acting upon it then. It's going to sit there and stay there. 
So an object at rest is going to remain at rest. That's what it's saying. An object at motion, so if I start to start it moving, it's going to keep moving forever. Didn't work, right? Oh, very good. There's friction. There's an external force acting on it in that there's friction between the case and the tabletop. And that's an external force that is acting on it. If there were no friction, right, if we had an air, air hockey table here and I pushed it, it would keep going and keep going and keep going forever till it bangs into the wall. External force. Out in space, you would get that, right? You set an object moving, you throw an object out in space, and it's just going to keep going forever. It'll take a long time to get any place because space is so big, but it will keep moving in that straight line motion until something else acts upon it. Yeah, force of gravity from, and if you try to launch something from Earth, then of course you get it away from the Earth and the sun's gravity is pulling on it. So you need to get it going even faster to escape from the sun. But some, so some object would be, at, would be acting on it. When we sent the, you know, sent the astronauts to the moon, you know, we broke away from the Earth's uh, gravity and went to the moon's gravity. So something else changed the orbit there by getting another force to act, to act on it. But that's what the first law is really just saying is that any object is going to want to do one of two things. It's either going to want to sit there and not move at all, or it's going to want to move in a straight line at a constant speed. And that's all it wants to do. If it's doing anything other than that, there's got to be a force acting on it. And that's how we explain the orbits of the planets, right? The, or the planets are not at rest. They're moving. They're not moving in a straight line, right? They're moving in ellipses, circles, you know, some sort of curved object. A curved orbit, so there has to be something else acting upon them. And that's the force of gravity. If it were not for gravity, right, turn off gravity right now and the planets just start moving in a straight line. Turn off the sun's gravity, the planets will just keep moving right as they're moving that instant. They'll keep going there until they come into some other, some other force, until one of them collides with each other or they collide with something else. Again, considering how empty space is, they're probably just going to head out forever and never collide with anything. They're just going to keep going. So as long as there is some sort of force there, until there is some other force, these are the two things that any object is going to do. And that's how we can explain the motions that we see. The motions that we see not only here on Earth, but in the solar system. I'm going to put up the second and third laws here and then we'll finish these, uh, review these a little bit on Friday and then finish up the rest of the little, last little bit of this chapter. Uh, Newton's second law just says that acceleration, I'm going to write it as the equation there, it's written out in words. If you prefer that, it's written out as an equation. If you prefer that, since it's quicker, I'm going to write the equation form on the board. But they're both saying the same thing. The acceleration of an object depends on two things. Depends on the force applied and it depends on the mass of that object. So if I push an object, it moves. If I push it a little bit harder, it moves faster. Okay, it's going to be accelerated more. If I increase the force, the acceleration is going to increase. If I decrease the amount of force, how much that object accelerates is going to decrease. So that's one way things can change. The second thing, it depends on the mass. Okay, if you push on a lighter object, if you push on a uh, cat, dog, you know, give it a push, it's going to move, right? But don't be careful pushing the cat with the claws. But you know, push on it, it's going to move a little bit. If I try to push on an elephant, it's not going to move unless it wants to, right? Or push on something, the mass of the elephant, you know, I'm not going to be able to budge that. 
So, it's, so the cat's going to accelerate pretty quickly if I give it a good shove and get out of the way. Might not be happy afterwards, but it's going to move. It's going to accelerate quite a bit. The elephant with a much bigger mass isn't going to budge. I can, push it, I can push as hard as I want to on it, but if I put that same amount of, of force, if I push the same amount on both of them, which one's going to move? Right? The little, little cat's going to actually move. The elephant is not, is not going to budge. So that's essentially what Newton's, law, Newton's second law is telling you. There's two different things. Depends on the force, how much force you push on an object, how much it's going to accelerate, and how big it is. How big, how much matter it contains on how much it will accelerate. Newton's third law says that A exerts a force on B and B, we've heard this one before, right? An equal and opposite force on A. We love this one, right? This is what keeps us here. This is why we're not all collapsed on the floor when instead of sitting on a chair, right? You're sitting on the chair, you're pushing a force down on the chair. If that force, that chair doesn't push up with exactly the same amount of force, right? Got a weak wobbly chair and you sit on it, what happens? Boom. You said it couldn't push up with enough force to support you. But every object is going to exert a force, so you're exerting a force on the chair. That chair exerts an equal and opposite force on you exactly. If it exerted too much force, right, it's pushing you up and it's pushing you up into the air. If it doesn't exert enough force, you broke the chair and you're on the floor. And that's also uh, the idea of, you know, propulsion for a rocket, right? You exert a force, you exert a force in one direction, send, send exhaust out of the rocket at very, very high speeds and it slowly accelerates the rocket. Why does one move so much faster than the other? Come back to Newton's second law. You've got a lot more mass on the rocket that you're trying to lift than you do on the gases that you're expelling out the bottom. So I'll review these briefly at the beginning on Friday. And then the one more Newton's law. Newton has, these are Newton's three laws of motion. There's one more law of Newton's that we'll talk about then on the law of gravitation that we'll come back to then. So do not forget we do have a homework that is due on Friday. And if you have not already turned the activity in, I'll take that. I need that by Friday as well. So have a good afternoon, rest of the morning, and I will see everyone Friday.